Hey everyone, before we start, we just want to quickly mention a few ways you can support the show. We put a lot of work into each episode, sometimes up to about 40 hours, between recording, editing, mixing, composing. It's a huge commitment, and we're really just two guys doing this, even though we're starting to hire out others to help us take on some of the workload. But we don't make money from this show, so here are a few ways you can support the show if you want us to be able to produce these episodes more efficiently and with shorter breaks. We have a soundtrack available on iTunes. It's called Between Us, a Psychotherapy Podcast Original Soundtrack. We're proud of it, and if you like the vibe of the show, you would like putting it on in the background on a lazy Saturday morning. The second way to support the show is to go to patreon.com slash between us and become a supporter. Both ways are really easy and will help us do the thing that we do. Thanks. I came here today to tell you in all seriousness that I'm done. I did what you said. I gave it a lot of thought and I decided that once and for all, it's over. The truth is, this therapy is a jerk-off. You know it, and I know it. I actually don't know it, but please continue. It's a jerk-off. Yes, you've said that. So there's some contradictions there, yeah. inherently, <laughs> that yeah. I'm curious about, but also sure. like finding a counseling career in the midst of all that story. Yeah. Where do you want to start? <laughs> There's so much there. Yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know better than I do. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. So what are you doing right now professionally? So right now I work at um, Eating Recovery Center in Bellevue, Washington. Mm-hmm. And I work on the child and adolescent unit as a therapist with kids and teenagers, adolescents, who are coming to treatment primarily for an eating disorder and working really closely with their families as well. And have you been doing that for a long time? No, I just started the job in February of this year. Usually, when you all reach out to me and say, I think I would make a great guest on your show, I take it with a huge grain of salt. I think it's natural to react to such a self-promotion with a bit of suspicion. Even if that means you're suspicious when I tell you you should check out the show. But when people's friends reach out to me and tell me about them, that's a little different. The email I got about our next guest said that her friend Whitney was a queer ex-Mormon therapist who came to the realization that she had an eating disorder while working in an eating disorder clinic. I guess, as far as hooks go, I was snagged. But in editing this interview with our guest Whitney Erickson, it got me thinking about those identity categories. So much of how we think is centered on these categories, whether it be our philosophy, our religion, our politics. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. I'm skeptical of some of the categories. I see my artist and musician friends online who identify as makers. 
I guess it means they make things. Isn't that just human? Isn't it human to make things? But on the other hand, it's human to love. It's human to worship. It's human to eat. Then I go to this. There are parts of our identities that are central, and there are parts of our identities that aren't. And that between these parts that are superficial and central, there are parts of our identity that are plastic, and there are parts of our identity that are concrete. Whitney Erickson talks about these different parts of her identity as though they are flowing through her personality, sometimes bubbling up to the surface, and sometimes part of the undercurrent, but always made up of the same molecules that constitute the river that is her personality. And this kind of harmonious integration makes her very human to me. Although there is a great deal of her experience that I cannot say is part of mine, and that's why it was such a pleasure to talk to her. This is Whitney Erickson, queer woman, ex-Mormon, eating disorder survivor, human. Here she is. I moved out to Washington almost a year ago, a year ago, the beginning of October, from Utah. Did you grow up in Utah? No, um, I grew up in Ohio. I grew up about 40 miles south of Cleveland, so northeast Ohio. I moved to Utah when I was 20, almost 21, in 2006. Mm -hmm. So when did you decide to go into counseling? I think that for a long time, I was really interested in psychology. My undergrad degree is in psychology, and my master's is in social work. And Mm -hmm. so the last job that I had at my undergrad was at a group home for adolescents who were in the custody of the state of Utah. And I really liked that. I really loved that internship. And they offered me a full-time program director position when I graduated. And so I ended up doing that anyway. I ended up really lost in my work, which was a complete tool for me to avoid myself, Mm. my personal life, and ended up getting lost in that. And so did not go back to school right away like I had intended. And then just found myself continuing to cycle through just really being addicted to that pattern of work as a way to just avoid myself. I eventually ended up getting back into school, doing the master's program at the University of Utah in the School of Social Work, and went into social work, that license specifically with the flexibility I knew it would allow me in the field to be able to do a bunch of different things, including therapy and counseling. And so I guess what kind of interested me in that was just really loving being able to experience meaningful and authentic connection from the space of being able to hold space for other people. And so I understand it much more upon reflection than I did going through it. Um, It was really just about like the universe, like consistently pulling me in, in the direction of this work, kind of despite my own resistance and patterns of avoidance. Were there major revelations yet to come about yourself? I think my process through graduate school was a lot of similar timing with my faith crisis Hmm. as well. I reached a lot of 
climaxes and turns and revelations and realizations before, but a lot during grad school. Well, can I ask bluntly, like, were you out? Actually, my coming out story is really with my bishop, who's like the, it would have been a a church leader. So Mm -hmm. the man in the position of authority in the ward that I was attending in where I was active at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time I ever came out to anyone. When I was really coming into my own and embracing and accepting my queerness, I came out to some close friends first and then came out to family one at a time. Coming out is probably the most dialectic experience of my life. Mm -hmm. Two opposing experiences coexisting. You know, it's really personally invading. It's also really empowering. It's validating and can also be really invalidating. Mm. It's continuously hard, but also effortless today. Was ther- your own therapy ever a part of that process? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you still identified as Mormon at the time? Yes. And I'm guessing that's evolved as well? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would consider myself ex-Mormon now. Okay. Yeah, I've had my records removed from the church. Well, I don't know what that means. So there's like active, which means you're participating, you're attending, mm-hmm in the Sunday activities and typically in everything that is involved in being a member of the church. And then there's what's called inactive, which is that your name is still on the records of the church, like they have you listed as a member, but you're not really in attendance or you're kind of sporadically attending here or there. And then the other end of that, of the activity piece, is you can formally request to have your name removed from the records of the church, Mm. which removes any affiliation with the church and um, kind of takes you off of their census, quote unquote. And it also like dissolves any covenants that you've made that have ties to. Mm. It's a bit complicated, but essentially what it means is that you've been removed as a member of the congregation in the most formal way possible. Was that a grieving process for you? Yeah. I think by the time I ended up officially removing my name from the records of the church, I was reaching the end, if not the after, of the grieving process. I had really made that decision in my mind over and over and over again and was not taking the formal steps to do so for like my family's sake, for my parents' sake. And then I just was like driving home from work one day and was just like, authenticity and integrity are such core values for me. There were several things that kind of tipped me toward like when the church came out with a policy like specifically about LGBTQ people. And it was a policy that said that any children who wanted to be baptized into the church that had parents who were LGBTQ would have to disown their parents in order to get baptized. And when that policy came out, it brought this conversation to the forefront of my mind like it had so many times before. And I just was like, if I am truly this person of authenticity and integrity, 
it is not congruent with who I am and what I believe about myself to be affiliated with this institution and organization. Mm -hmm. And I just went, you know, whatever the fallout is with my family or whatever the emotional consequences are, I'm more important than that. I think it's a common narrative for therapists to come out of religious harm. My own emergence into psychoanalytic theory comes not from a harmful experience with religion, but from a complicated faith journey, and at the end of the day, started really with a frustration over the Christian church lacking a nuanced take on sex. That happened as I realized that the church with a capital C didn't really represent what I considered Christian values. I was raised in the South as an evangelical Christian, even though my mom was a Jew who had converted before meeting my dad. And the religion I remember being raised with is not the one that I see today. For me, it was about love and reflection and humility. I remember praying to God as a young teenager, asking God to show me how I could be better, how I could improve myself to love my neighbors and friends and family more. I don't know if it changed me. I don't know what they would say. But this was the beginning of a therapy career for me, reflecting and creating change. I don't really hear those narratives in the Christian church today. I hear the more exclusionary aspects of organized religion, stories of marginalizing our fellow humans, stories like that of Whitney. My faith crisis like is over the span of so many years. Like it, it's not like this all came to fruition in a short amount of time. Like I was in and out of the church a lot in mm. my early 20s. Mm. And then there was like a final exodus, but then it even took me several years after that to have my name removed. And so it was very much this in, out, in, out, back and forth, back and forth, physically, but also mentally, emotionally, spiritually. These words, authenticity and integrity, where did that language come into how you think about yourself? So I think to me, integrity is being true to yourself, regardless of the consequences, Mm -hmm. being able to live your truth, speak your truth, own your truth. Mm -hmm. And then authenticity to me is just like being real, having what you're saying and doing match your internal experience and being able to show up in that way. I am who I am, no matter where I am no matter who I'm with. And I think those values for me really come from being raised in the church, like being raised Mormon, being raised LDS. And those are two of the values that throughout my journey and my process, I went through this whole shuffling of what makes sense for me, what doesn't, and I get to be the architect of myself Mm. and my values. I've come from the South and I come from like more of an evangelical culture. Yeah. I'm sure it's different in a lot of ways, but that part seems contradictory to like what the church would want us to believe. Which? The subjectivity part of being able to like take. Oh, yeah. Take what is authoritative of your own and make 
sense out of the world for yourself. Oh, yeah. That's not what would be taught from a Mormon perspective yeah. at all. <laughs> I'm guessing that it would be a scripture would be the way that you know what's true about yourself or that. Yeah. Or yeah. like it's this is what the prophet says. This is what the scriptures say. It's very much you look to church leadership mm-hmm. to tell you how to live, what's right. okay and what's not okay. And you're not allowed to ask questions. And there's no room for doubt or inquiry. As soon as you say that part, my question becomes like, how does that work with a counselor? I guess this could be true of any like conservative branch of religion. How does a counselor work with them from a framework of we don't have doubt, we don't have questions, we're not curious about seeing things from different perspectives. It also kind of sounds like you were just like your own person all, all along the way. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes, which was where there was so much clash and yeah. conflict for me within my family, within my community, within my culture, mm-hmm. all along the way. And so I never really ascribed to that tenant of the belief system and structure. Yeah. I was kind of always the one who was going, wait, shouldn't we look at that from a different perspective? Or let's be curious about that. Does that really make sense? Those values of authenticity and integrity, I'm guessing that they come into your work as well. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So would your clients agree with that? I would hope so. (laughs) I think so. And I'm guessing you work with with kids? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, That's pretty huge. Yeah for a kid to be able to have a counselor who's authentic with them. Yeah. I think that it allows for really powerful therapeutic work. Mm -hmm. I love that so much about what I do. And I think it's the best way to affect change in my position as a therapist, as a human in my interactions with others, but specifically in my role as a therapist, I'm here to help you figure out how to create change, right? I don't know what it would be like to not do that just because I think that that makes me who I am as a person and I am who I am as a therapist because of who I am as a person. It almost sounds like someone who has a near-death experience and so suddenly they have like this perspective on life of like we might as well have fun because Mm -hmm. it goes away one day. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, my me valuing authenticity is a direct result of growing up in a family and in a community and a culture where I was not okay for being who I am as I came into this world, not having control over any of those pieces of my identity. Mm-hmm. And I think my passion and drive toward authenticity and integrity is a direct result of years and years and years and years of living in the shadows of my true self, hiding who I am, not even knowing that I was doing that. I don't even have memories from when I was a a child, like early Mm. childhood. Like that's a lot of the work that I'm doing with my therapist right now is this peace work, this inner child work, because Mm. as I put together this timeline of my life, you get me to before 11 or 12 and the only things I remember are things that other people have told me or that I have images in my mind of from pictures that I've seen I'm a super feeler you know it's like I feel things so intensely I'm a sponge for emotion that's who I am at my core and so 
my five-year-old self, 10-year-old self, soaking up all of this energy from my environment, from the people around me, from my family, on top of what I'm experiencing internally, having no awareness of that energy, having no idea how to deal with it. And so really like my survival instincts kicking in and that space of just shutting off and shutting down and that disconnect. And I've lived, I lived from that disconnected space still today for more of my life than not. I get to be who I am today. You know, I get to show up authentically and in my integrity for myself today, but also for all of those versions of me within me Mm. that didn't get that. And so, yeah, it's important. What a gift to be able to bring to other young women, to be able to be still getting in touch with your inner little girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I think of young girls or women with eating disorders, I think, and I'm ignorant, but I think of someone who is not being able to just be a kid. Right. Yeah, definitely. What brought you to that work? The universe and the powers that are bigger and greater than me in this world just continue to steer me toward like my higher meaning and purpose. Mm. And I'm kind of oblivious to a lot of that as it's happening, but I just trust. Mm -hmm. Today I trust myself, but all along like I've trusted Mm. that higher power Mm -hmm. energy. Whether that was, you know, God Jesus Christ, you know, Heavenly Father is the word in Mormon land for God. Mm. And today, you know, my understanding of that has evolved. But regardless, like trusting what's bigger than me, just allowing myself to be taken where I need to go. In my mind, logically, it was, I want to do something different. I want to do something I haven't done. I had worked largely in substance abuse Mm. with adults and their families. And so there's a lot of mirroring and parallels between eating disorders and substance abuse. And so that was all a part of it, logically, but ultimately, like just throughout the interview process and just navigating through what's the next job I'm going to take, like really just being in tune with myself and, and trusting what, what felt right. And so that's how I ended up taking the job. Now, then I took the job and I'm coming to work and getting into it. And Mm -hmm. I met another therapist there and became good friends with her and we clicked then we started becoming friends and she writes as like this catharsis process and so do I and so we ended up exchanging what we were writing here and there and as a part of that process like she had shared with me how she was in recovery from an eating disorder Hmm. and then she introduced me to her friend who then was also talking to me about her experience of being in recovery from an eating disorder and so I'm kind of like storing that information and processing it and starting this, like being in this job, Mm -hmm. working with eating disorders. And I'm going 
I get that being a therapist is hard, right? Like, (laughs) it's emotionally taxing. It requires a lot of you. It takes a lot of energy. Like, you're holding space for other people's shit constantly. I get all of that. Like, I've been in the field. But it was, like, extra in this job. And I was like, what is that about? I need to get back in therapy. Like, I need a space to be able to process this. Like, something, I'm missing something. And, like, talking about it in supervision at work, but really still not getting anywhere. And feeling like there's this missing piece. And then I'm remembering these conversations with these two women who, I'm in recovery from an eating disorder. I'm in recovery from an eating disorder. Then I was talking to her, and she said, you know, I think I'm going to reach out to John, who does this podcast. And I just think it would be really fascinating and interesting to hear your story someone who's experienced significant weight loss and is working with kids with eating disorders and I'm like why would that be interesting and she's like because you're working with these kids with eating disorders and you know in the last couple of years you've lost 150 pounds and I'm like yeah lots of people lose significant amount of weight all the time like so what like it didn't get it So I'm processing that conversation and then I'm still going to work and coming home and all of this extra emotional Mm. turmoil and it clicked and I was like, here I am going to work and having these kids and their parents sit in front of me every day and I'm like, I think I'm in recovery from an eating disorder. And so I'm having this conversation with these two women and they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like... I've never framed it that way. Like, I don't think you get it. I've never looked at it that way. It was obvious to them? It was obvious to them. Mm. I'm caught when listening to this interview between not wanting to hijack it with my commentary, to make Whitney's points into my own points, but also wanting to scream that she is bringing back to the surface of my thoughts, my own tortured relationship with food. I thought we had little in common before we did the interview, but we do have some similarities. I look back at pictures of myself in high school and see how skinny I was, but remember how gross I felt. And now I have been judging my body negatively for a long time. Obviously, it was socialized differently for me as a boy. The standard from society wasn't so crushing. But I still think about food as this way of punishing myself. If I'm feeling shameful, or if I had a stressful week, or if I'm lonely, I think in those moments, overeating for me becomes something that is both punishment and self-love, or love that is punishment. I wonder if those of us who have had that connection between love and punishment experience it in other areas of life, like say, the love of a judgmental and vengeful God. It makes sense. That's real. And so for me, really long answer to your question, like why did I end up in this job? Because I'm in recovery from an eating disorder and I've been through these experiences of these people that I'm working with in such an intimate, vulnerable, authentic way.
I guess the one thing that I think has the potential to provide a lot of healing for mm-hmm. people who are or have experienced anything similar to me, especially in terms of my struggle with eating disorder and weight, which is that so much of why it was not obvious to me that I had an eating disorder is because I'm not anorexic Mm. and I'm a bigger bodied person Mm. and we don't look at eating disorders from that perspective. And so it never even crossed my mind Mm -hmm. that that would be something that I should think about, have an awareness of, that this super unhealthy maladaptive pattern around food was relevant to my experience. Mm -hmm. And even after losing 150 pounds, it didn't click. Right. There could have been opportunity for me to understand that and realize that a lot sooner if things culturally and societally were different. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm super grateful for my experience and having the knowledge that I have now, but God damn it, it would have been a lot easier to have it sooner. You know, when you go to psychology courses in undergrad or when you go to like counseling, graduate school or social work, there's a joke that people say, which is like, you're going to figure out your Uh own problems. And whenever I hear that kind of comment, I think, We should be so lucky for Mm -hmm. that to be true about Mm -hmm. all of us. I think more often Mm -hmm. people get into this work to avoid having to Mm -hmm. look back on themselves. Mm -hmm. I joke with this therapist that I work with, this friend of mine, we joke back and forth. Like, we're just as fucked up as these people. Yeah. Just in different ways. Yeah. And we have some education. Right? And we happen to have some education and some letters behind our name. Right. I'm anticipating these ongoing self-discoveries if you will and I think that I think that makes me good at what I do I think that makes me really good at what I do I think it's what your clients need way better way to say it so can I ask specifically about the eating disorder revelation my pattern of maladaptive coping when it comes to eating is in the form of binging Mm. and so I had been an overeater for years and years and years and years and since I was a little kid adding on the weight and the weight is a was a is a tangible representation of walls between myself and others a way to repel people and keep people out of my space Mm. for lots of reasons lots of you know really negatively rooted belief systems about myself Mm. rooted in shame. I'm wired for connection, but I don't deserve that. and I'm never going to have it. Like Mm. I'm like forever alone. And so my defense mechanism, self-protection mechanism, whatever you want to call it, was to create tangible rejection between myself and others. A self-fulfilling prophecy. When my physical health came into focus, and again, those principles of authenticity and integrity, how at the time working in substance abuse, here I am showing up every day, teaching these principles, teaching these values and their importance, 
and how to live congruently to mm-hmm. who you are. And I'm a big fucking hypocrite over here. It's so important for us to be doing our own personal work as therapists. And it's so common for a therapist not to do that work. Once therapists are out of training and in the working world, it often stops. But like I say all the time, I think many of us get into this work to avoid turning the focus back onto ourselves. Whitney's story is a powerful story of how our work is strengthened when we reflect. I'm not okay with that, you know? And so really making it a priority to make change. And so that was the focus. I want to feel better. I want my energy back. I don't want to be 40, 50, 60, and all I can do is sit on the couch and watch TV because walking up and down the stairs is ridiculous, Mm -hmm. you know? I love being outside and hiking and biking and playing sports, all these things that I've loved since I was young and being active. And those are things that I can't do. And so it's also a matter of like self-care, right? Totally. Not not, not just in a weight aspect, but Mm -hmm. like allowing yourself to be happy. Allowing myself to be happy. Allowing myself to be happy. Allowing myself to heal. Shedding shame. Mm -hmm. Shedding these barriers between myself and others and allowing myself to be seen. And the weight came off as a side effect. Wow. I'm thinking about that revelation of working with folks with eating disorders and Mm. and having the revelation of this is my shit in front of me. Right. Yeah. That requires like an intensive self-care reaction. Yeah. And I'm also curious about secondary trauma and the stuff that you carry for your clients. Mm -hmm. I mean... As someone whose most maladaptive coping mm-hmm. mechanism is usually food, yeah, that would make me want to eat. Yeah, <laughs> it would make me want to like fill some void with pizza. It does. Yeah, it absolutely does. And so, what is your self care process like now? So, it's moved from a really rigorous and disciplined exercise routine. Mm-hmm. Because my exercise and eating habits through my process of recovery were not always adaptive. Yeah. And so there's a lot of flux and change that I've had to implement and be aware of because Mm -hmm. I end up in those spaces of I'm not eating that because I'm associating it with that's going to make me fat or I'm going to the gym this morning because... It's a punishment. And so having to stay so aware and present with myself, because these, the coping skill of exercise, for example, can be so beneficial, so adaptive, Mm -hmm. and can also be the worst fucking thing you could possibly do. And so I'm still practicing that awareness in what am I doing and why? Mm -hmm. And is this for self-care or is this fueling my shit? Mm A change that I've made now that's so exercise is so much a part of my self-care. And so it's a regular part of my routine several times a week. And Mm. I'm usually getting up and doing it before work so that I can beat the traffic. (laughs) And that's a bonus and that helps motivate me to get up. And so exercise is a huge part of it. But I'm exercising today and I'm doing things that I enjoy doing. So I love to ride my bike. 
Mm -hmm. I love to go for a jog. I love to go to the spin class at the gym. I love to go to yoga. I'm not exercising to burn calories or to lose weight. I'm exercising because it gives me more energy because I feel better overall and it helps sustain me. So that's a huge part of my self-care routine. I also eat whatever I want whenever I want within reason, but I'm not punishing myself via food, whether that's binging or whether that's starving myself. But that was really important for me, like not making these decisions on food based on how many calories it had, or this is a good food versus a bad food, or this is junk food. Like Mm -hmm. what sounds good, what tastes good and really practicing like intuitive, mindful eating. Mm -hmm. And if I go out to eat, I can eat the whole thing or if I'm if my fullness cues are there then I take the rest home but Mm -hmm. I don't have these like rules I write that's hugely therapeutic for me in a form of self-care the other day I wrote about shedding the narrative that I'm a person of pain Mm. what's in that for you growing up and having an identity of being Mormon having an identity of being queer Mm. And having those identities be rooted in pain around these belief systems Mm -hmm. and structures that I am meant to suffer. Mm. And that's my calling. Mm. And shifting and taking control of my narrative and Mm -hmm. shedding this idea that I am supposed to be in pain. And pain Mm. is the only way to experience joy. Letting go of those and embracing I'm queer, I'm an ex-Mormon, this is a part of who I am. This is not who I am. This has shaped my experience, but it is not all of me in totality. Mm -hmm. And moving to a space of gratitude instead of pain Mm -hmm. and being able to see how I've benefited and would not change my experience but not allowing pain to be the sole motivator for forward movement. The part of this conversation that you won't be hearing is where I asked Whitney about dating other therapists. We both tried it. It's been much more recently for her. And we both had good experiences, it sounded like. But it led to us talking about dating as a form of self-care. This work is lonely work. And as you hear in Whitney's story, it can knock us on our ass. I think for those of us who are in danger of passing that loneliness on to our patients, it's important that we find people to respond to our needs. But that's my take on it. Where are you at spiritually? What do you mean? What role does spirituality play in your work and how you think about yourself? Ah, (laughs) so much. Spirituality is as much of who I am as anything else. How it shows up in our work gets tricky. Sure. But I think that it's always a part of the conversation in some way because it's so much of what I bring to the space. I don't, I don't know how to answer your question. I think, like, I believe in energy. Energy mm-hmm. is real. It is so real. 
I believe that what we put out comes back to us, this idea of karma. I believe that we're all connected. There's this interconnectivity. And I believe that whatever's out there, it's something that's bigger than me and than any of us. And I trust that and I respect that and I don't need to understand it. Have you lost people because of your identity? Yes. Yeah, mm. absolutely. That's sad. Yeah, it sucks. Coming out is unpredictable. Like, yeah. you think you can make these calculations in your head about what people's response and reaction will be, and you truly never know. Mm. Yeah, I've lost people that I never would have imagined losing. Mm. And I've been supported and validated by people I never thought I would be. It is, it's truly unpredictable. My experience has been so across the board. Hmm. It's wild, especially, it so especially with people that are still active in the church, family hmm. and friends that I've come out to, because the LDS church operates from the standpoint that you can have same-sex attraction, which is what they call it, but you can't act on it. So it's this celibate lifestyle, which is where so much of the inner dialogue in my head and in core beliefs was around being forever alone. Because mm. you can be who you are, but you're going to have to be alone forever. The thought popped in my head of like, it's almost treating sex like the way your clients think about food. Yeah. As if like, it's like this bodily function that I can't allow myself to engage in. That's such a good way to put it. Yes. And both are feeding us as humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the other part about self-care that I was going to mention before was, like, dating. You know, right. like, exploring new relationships. Like, that's part of my self-care right now and part of allowing myself to be seen. But, like, allowing myself joy and pleasure, like, in those capacities. Like, that's human nature. Mm -hmm. Do you hang out with other therapists? Yes. What, how's that? Well, I'm still, like, making friends and stuff here. Yeah. And historically, my circle's pretty small. Mm. I even, like, in, in the dating world, I end up, like, dating therapists a lot. How is that? Um, it's fascinating. <laughs> I wonder if you ever think about, like, where you might be had you not been resilient. I mean, yeah. there's... Yeah, I wouldn't be alive. Yeah. I wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. just from that perspective. So yeah, resilient is a great word. Thank you. Something kept you going. Yeah. I'm glad. Me too. <laughs> it's good to meet you. You too. Our thanks to Whitney Erickson. This has been Between Us. Our show is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely, who also composes our music with additional editing by Chris Keene at Cutter's Cathedral in Chico, California. If you like the show, make sure to find us where you find podcasts and subscribe. And if you can, leave a review on iTunes. Also, find the Between Us Psychotherapy Podcast original soundtrack on iTunes to own some of our original music and support the show. Or you can find us at patreon.com slash between us to become a supporter for future episodes. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and say hello. And until next time, 
Take care. <laughs>